like getting to know what different types of people are like in a relationship. And I think that puts you more in the driver's seat because you're going, what do I like in a partner rather than just them choosing me being the only criterion that you're looking at? So I think like that quality of making sure you are looking at someone's suitability for you rather than just the fact that they chose you being the only box that you're wanting to have ticked, I think is a good rule of thumb. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is relationship coach Stephanie Rigg. Stephanie is also the host of the popular relationship podcast, On Attachment, where she delves deep into all things attachment theory, love, relationships, and intimacy, sharing her wisdom and experience to help you start making real changes in your life and relationships. Today on the show, we discuss the four different types of attachments and relationships, including which are most common, why improving your self-worth is more important than knowing your attachment style, the signs that you have an anxious or avoidant attachment style, what you can do early on in a relationship if you have an anxious or avoidant attachment style, how to develop a secure attachment in relationships, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Stephanie Rigg to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Doug. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here, and I'd love to get right into it. Um, So I know a lot of your work is based on helping people understand different attachment styles, understanding what their attachment style is, that that way they can improve the relationship, not only with other people, but with themselves. So I think a good place for us to start is, could you explain what the four attachment styles are and which ones are the most common? As you say, there are four attachment styles and... I think a really useful entry point into a conversation around attachment styles, because a lot of people now have encountered discussion of attachment styles on social media, or maybe they've read a book, but I think there are a lot of misconceptions around what we're actually talking about when we're talking about attachment styles. People think it's some sort of diagnosis of dysfunction, or they think it's a fixed personality trait, when really attachment styles are just broad groupings that describe the way we experience relationships more or less and specifically the types of things that cause us stress in relationship and the strategies that we have learned throughout the course of our lives to manage that stress, right? So if we start with secure attachment, which is estimated to represent about 50% of people, which whenever I say that to people, they're like, really? 50% of people are secure? Because uh, it doesn't feel like that a lot of the time. It feels like we've all got our stuff. Um, And we do, but uh, 50%-ish of people, so that's the most uh, common attachment style and it's kind of what we're all shooting towards in doing this work. Securely attached people broadly trust in the safety of relationships. That doesn't mean that they're never going to struggle or have conflict or whatever else, but they broadly trust that it is safe to depend on others and to have others depend on them. They don't have you know, really strong fear and self-protectiveness around being in relationship with someone. And as we'll come to in a moment, the 
insecure attachment styles, which is kind of the other three fall into this broad bucket of insecure attachment, have various fears around what it means to depend on others and to have others depend on them. So some of the traits of a securely attached person is they're happy on their own or being in relationships, so they're not going to panic at being single. They're kind of comfortable in who they are, but they're also happy to be in partnership and usually will pursue long-term partnership. They are comfortable voicing needs and concerns. Uh, They're comfortable setting boundaries, but they're also responsive to other people's needs and concerns and boundaries. Um, So there is just this sense of ease that characterizes the way that the the securely attached person exists in relationship. Um, And from that place, there is this general trust that you know, we can navigate things. If if we have conflict, we can repair. Um, so there's, there's just this sense of safety that goes along with the securely attached person in relationships. And from that place, authentic self-expression, acceptance of others, it's kind of really fertile soil for all of those other good things to grow. We then turn to the insecure attachment styles. So anxious attachment, which is most of the people that I work with and my own personal uh, history and my background (laughs) as far as attachment is concerned, for the anxiously attached person, if we go back to that framework of what causes me stress and how do I deal with the stress, the anxiously attached person, uh, distance, uncertainty, separation from a partner is going to cause stress. So the anxiously attached person uses strategies that are basically geared around closing the gap or regaining a sense of control when it feels like the connection is threatened in some way. So the anxiously attached person has a very strong preference for being in relationship and can feel very, very uncomfortable and unsafe in being alone. So this can lead them to cling and to grip and to try and control, um, basically to hold on to someone for dear life because it feels like I'm not okay if you're not okay or if we're not together, then I'm not going to be okay. I derive my sense of safety in the world from being connected to you. And so to the extent that our relationship is threatened in any way, I I panic, I freak out. And so for anxiously attached people, things like conflict are really hard because it feels like conflict is a precursor to the relationship ending, right? All roads lead back to you're going to leave me and that terrifies me. So they might not set boundaries at all. They just let anyone do anything because I don't want to assert myself in case you say no and leave me. (laughs) I don't want to ask for anything. I want to be very low maintenance and just be easygoing so that you'll love me and I won't be too much for you and you'll never leave me, right? There's this aversion to being a burden to anyone. So that's kind of a a broad um, brush stroke of, of what the anxious attachment style is. On the other end of the spectrum, the more avoidant attachment style, dismissive avoidant is how it's sometimes referred to, this person is quite hyper-independent. So they sit at the opposite extreme to the anxiously attached person. They might not want to be in relationship or if they are in relationship, they're very protective of their independence and their autonomy and anything that feels like a threat to that, they're going to have a strong reaction against and really push that away. So if it feels like someone's smothering them or trying to control them or trying to change them, that's where their, you know, self-protective responses are going to kick in and say, no, get back. Uh, So the things that cause them stress are loss of independence, loss of autonomy, feeling controlled, um, and the way that they 
manage that stress is to create distance. So again, really very much the opposite of the anxious person in that the anxious person wants to close the gap and the more avoidant person wants to create that space as a way to protect themselves. The fourth and final attachment style is the disorganized attachment style, which is also the fearful avoidant, also referred to as fearful avoidant. And this person experiences both high anxiety and high avoidance often in the same moment. So it's like, I want to be close to you. And yet once I'm there, I'm terrified that you're going to hurt me. And so I have this impulse to run. So they experience a lot of internal chaos because they have these very conflicting drives at the same time. Whereas the anxious person will pretty consistently seek to move towards their partner. Even if they're furious with their partner, even if their partner's really upset or hurt them, they're never going to you know, pull away or hardly ever going to pull away. But they would rather, you know, stand face to face and scream at their partner and have a fight for five hours than they would to leave the room uh, because that connection is so paramount to their sense of safety. For the disorganized attachment style, it is much more uh, conflicted and it can feel very, very challenging. Uh, they can struggle with trusting people, trusting people's intentions. There can be this sense of you know, if I am vulnerable with you, then you have a an ability to hurt me and I, I can struggle to trust the people closest to me more than anyone else. So there can be fears around betrayal um, and, yeah, it's often outwardly looks like very push-pull behaviour. So it's like I, I need you close and then once you're close I feel so overwhelmed that I push you away or I run. Um, so that is kind of a... Um, you know, it's more complicated and nuanced than just being a combination of the other two, but that is often how it presents is, you know, high on anxiety and high on avoidance. Based on like the years that you've, all the years that you've done with, with coaching people and learning about attachment styles, like what do you think is most common to be at the precursor of all this? Is it childhood trauma, which, you know, has been what a lot of people have said, um, but I would also imagine that, that like present day stuff could influence it too. Meaning if you're somebody that had a great childhood and your parents both, lo both loved you, they both made you feel secure, like all those things, then as an adult, you become insecure with yourself that I would imagine your attachment, your attachment style would change. So what have you found to, what have you found that influences all this the most? Yeah. So, I mean, the origin of attachment theory was not in adult romantic relationships. It was in infant caregiver relationship. So that is very much the genesis of this whole body of work. And so, um, you know, in, in many, most cases, there is childhood origin stories around this. Um, so, and to be very clear, it's not necessarily trauma or abuse or, you know, gross mistreatment or negligence or anything like that. Um, but it's just sometimes we didn't get what we needed by way of attunement, by way of uh, a caregiver being, you know, present and aware of what was going on for us. And that is even in, you know, loving happy homes. Um, it's research has been done that has suggested that, you know, 30-ish percent of the time our caregivers needed to be attuned and present and kind of um, like respond to our cues, our attachment cues in order for a secure attachment to develop. So that's actually a pretty low bar that if like you have pretty much a 30% success rate as a parent that your child should develop a secure attachment. 
So um, with all of that being said, it's entirely possible and indeed happens that parents can be loving and a home can be broadly stable and these insecure attachment patterns can develop for an array of reasons. Um, So they're kind of key origin stories for each attachment style. For the anxious attachment style, it tends to center around inconsistency. So it's this sense of it feels really good when we're connected and I, I love being near you and I love our relationship, but I can't trust in the reliability of your responsiveness to me. So sometimes when I reach for you, you're there and other times you're not there in a way that is really confusing to me. And so my response is to keep you close because I don't want to let go because if I let go, then I don't know when I'm next going to be responded to. So that inconsistency creates anxiety as inconsistency does in in many areas of life. If we can't predict our environment, we become anxious and hypervigilant. Um, and, you know, we seek to predict what's going to happen by gathering information and trying to establish control. And the same goes for this. Um, for more avoidant attachment patterns, uh, often there is a almost like an emotional neglect component. So this might not be, again, it doesn't have to be trauma or abuse, but it could be, you know, just families who weren't particularly emotionally developed themselves, parents who didn't talk about emotions or, you know, saying things to a kid like, you know, don't cry or, you know, where a child was getting the messaging of emotions are not acceptable or safe. Uh, and so they they learn to shut that part down and to channel their efforts into, you know, being a high achiever or being logical or, you know, any other thing that they need in order to get those needs for connection and acceptance met that aren't, you know, being emotional. Um, so it's sort of like that part withers or gets locked away a bit. And for the disorganized attachment style, that is the one that is most often associated with some level of of trauma or other adverse circumstances, because what is often found there is that that push-pull, that sense of I I want to be near you, but I'm also scared of you, can often come from caregivers who weren't safe, and yet the child depended on them for safety. So it's like, I know that I depend on you, you're my lifeline here, and yet I'm terrified of you because you're erratic or out of control or unpredictable in a way that, you know, I I am simultaneously dependent on you and terrified of you. And so that can produce that kind of, um, you know, that hot and cold or the push-pull between anxiety and avoidance. Um, but I suppose to your other point around can this develop later, yes, and you're right, like um, attachment styles are fluid, they're not fixed, um, and they can shift, although probably not quite as as much as people sometimes think, you know, I get people messaging me being like, I was this in my last relationship and now I'm this. And before that I was this. So it's not quite as, uh, you know, we're not like attachment chameleons in that, with that level of fluidity, but certainly, you know, if you're broadly secure and then you start dating someone who is wildly avoidant and is giving you extremely confusing mixed signals or is behaving in a way that is very uh, anxiety inducing. Again, inconsistency produces anxiety in most cases. Um, Then that could elicit more anxious strategies um, without necessarily meaning your attachment style has changed in a fundamental sense. So it's like, okay, if I'm 
with someone who is giving me all of these mixed signals or who is very erratic or, you know, inconsistent, then I might consciously or not start leaning on more anxious strategies, things like calling them several times or trying to get close to them or trying to control them because I feel out of control. So we can, uh, or, you know, on the other side, if someone is really anxious and overbearing and, you know, they're coming at you with this energy that feels extremely intense and overwhelming, then you might find yourself pulling away in, in a way that you usually wouldn't or creating distance or ignoring them or, or, you know, blanking them just because you feel so overwhelmed by the intensity of their energy and, and attachment towards you. So you might draw on more avoidance strategies, even though broadly in more balanced relationships, you tend to be a pretty good communicator and you're quite secure. And so bringing this all together and talking about childhood attachment styles, talking about adult relationships, talking about how things can, and how some, sometimes things can change. Like how can somebody know that what they're experiencing in adult relationships is a result of a way that they developed attachment as a child instead of needing to actually just work on themselves, needing to build their own confidence, build self-esteem, feel secure. Because in my own experience, and I know from a lot of other people that I know that when we felt, when we've had like, um, you know, when, when our life sometimes is in, in shambles or we're not happy with our life, we seek out validation from others to fill that void. Right. And so when you're doing that, then you can become anxious to attach to that person because you want that thing to fill you up. It's almost like a drug. Right. So how can somebody know the difference between those two things? Yeah, I'd almost say I'm not sure that it matters what the difference is. I think that the advice of work on your self-worth, work on your self-respect, and, you know, tend to that in a relationship is always good advice, irrespective of what else might be at play. I don't think you ever lose from doing that work. And that's advice that I often give to people, particularly more anxious people, is your tendency to over-index on your relationship, to outsource worth and validation, to put that in someone else's hands is really, you know, that's, that is your work. That is the essence of your work is to you know, be able to stand on your own two feet and be like, I'm comfortable with who I am. I might not reach this place of self-love right away, but can I be okay with who I am? Can I just like myself or respect myself and be comfortable that like, I'm a person living in alignment with my values and I have integrity and that's okay. That's, that can be enough for now. Because for most anxious people, they don't have that at all. There's such a strong people pleasing muscle and this like shape shifting of, I'll just agree with whatever you say, just please like me and please choose me. And there's, it's really hard to build anything on that. It's a very flimsy foundation to build on. Uh, so I don't know that, you know, if someone is in that place of unworthiness or feeling like their life is in disarray and they lean on relationships as a way to get some kind of validation or, or worth, I think that like, you know, getting your, your own house in order is always good advice, irrespective of, you know, any kind of attachment stuff that might be going on there. I think as like, it's like do that work. And then if there's still stuff happening, once you've got a foundation of, of self-worth and self-respect, then you can go that level deeper and get a bit more curious around, okay, uh, what are these like legacy burdens that I might be carrying around attachment wounding? Um, but it's easier to do that work when we've got stronger foundations. 
Right. And what I'm also hearing you say is ultimately it's up to us as the individual to do that work. Like when you're talking about attachment style, and I think when anybody talks about attachment style, it's not to point blame at something. It's more to give you clarity and understanding about your physiology and how you're hardwired with relationships so that you can be able to navigate that towards a healthier partnership. Am I correct? Yeah, I think that I think it's both. So I don't think it's solely personal responsibility. I think that there, you know, anything relational is going to have a relational aspect, but I think it's got to be our responsibility first. And I think that, you know, blame, certainly blaming someone is not useful or productive or honest. Um, so I think we've got to look at, you know, even people who are in really unhealthy dynamics and they say, you know, oh, but my partner did this and that's why I had to do that. It's like, yeah, but you're participating, right? You're still a participant in the dynamic and that's your work is to go, what is it about this dynamic that is attractive to me? Why do I keep going round and round in these circles? Why do I keep playing the game? Because that's the part that's within my control. So yeah, even if someone's treating you poorly, then you're you're still hanging around and that's the bit we have to get curious about. Again, it's not self-blame. It's like, you know, really radical curiosity. What is it about this that I'm getting something out of? Because I wouldn't be here if I wasn't getting something out of this. So why do I stay, you know, if someone's being indifferent towards me, if someone's being, you know, inconsistent or unkind or unavailable, why am I still there trying to get them to change or to prove my worth or to, you know, change strategies rather than just seeing it for what it is and going, okay, this person's not able to show up for me in the way that I desire um, or to meet me in the level of partnership that I'm wanting, maybe it's not a good fit. We internalize it and we go, it's about me and therefore it is my responsibility to change, to be whoever I need to be. Um, and that that kind of thing is our work. So I think that it's, you know, there is a relational component to it and certainly, you know, healthy relationships require a level of buy-in on both sides and both people need to be willing to do the work that it takes to build a healthy relationship. But you can't uh, say, you know, if they didn't do that, then I wouldn't do this. I think that that is not taking enough responsibility for your own side of the street. And I think that, you know, focusing on your staff Again, you can't lose from doing that work that is self-focused uh, as a first port of call with any of this stuff. And trusting that, you know, if you are in a relationship and you're in a, a tough place, that that will only benefit from you doing your work. You know, people say, like, how can I make sure they change? Or it's so unfair that I have to do all of the work and they don't have to do the work. It's like, where do you follow that argument to? It's like, therefore, I'm just going to stay stuck in my shit as well um, because it's not fair that they're not doing it. It's like you, you can't lose by cleaning up your side of the street. Either they, they grow with you or you outgrow them, but you're better off either way. And so if at the foundation of all of this and the, and the imp most important thing to do is to for people to build, our, to build their self-worth so that they can not only be in, in a healthy relationship with themselves, but other people, and then also be able to understand that they may there's there's something else they may need to work on if their self-worth is high and they're still experiencing these issues like that we've been discussing. How does somebody know that they actually have a high level of self-worth? Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure it's one that you could give like a 
you know, here are the three signs that you have high self-worth. But I think broadly speaking, and maybe I'll speak to my own personal experience, I've definitely had seasons of my life where I had very low self-worth. And I think that where I am now, I have pretty solid self-worth. And the difference is things like, do I broadly behave in a way that I am comfortable with or proud of? I think Again, for me, there were times in my life where I would behave in a way where I'd have such a, you know, such a lot of regret or shame about the way that I behave. And I was really uncomfortable with my choices or the way I would conduct myself. And I think that sort of feedback is really valuable. It's like, oh, I didn't like that. Um, I didn't like how I showed up. I think as I alluded to before, when we, you know, don't really stand behind our opinions, we just go with whatever everyone else is saying and doing. Um, it's like we don't have the courage or the worth to you know, advocate for ourselves or to stand firm in, in who we are and what we believe because you know, being accepted or being liked uh, feels more important than being true and honest. Um, I think if we've got relationships where we consistently feel you know, unhappy or unfulfilled or inauthentic that's usually a sign of of low self-worth um maybe if you feel i don't know a lack of purpose i wouldn't say is necessarily low self-worth but i think that people with a strong sense of self-worth tend to have a sense of purpose in their lives um so those are kind of some of the things that i would point to as indicators of high or low self-worth and then so taking this to the other side of the equation, once somebody maybe is listening to this, or maybe they've started to do some research and started to unpack, like, what does it mean if I, my self-worth isn't as good as it can be and somebody wants to work on that? What are some things that have, that have helped you personally improve your self-worth um, so that you could be able to have healthy relationships? We will get you back to this episode of The Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Just Thrive. I have covered the topic of gut health extensively on the show and why it is so important to have a healthy microbiome. 80 to 90% of Americans suffer from some type of gut issue and 70 to 80% of your immune system is in the gut. And while cleaning up your diet and managing your stress should be at the foundation of addressing your gut health, a probiotic can certainly be very beneficial. When buying a probiotic, you want to be sure that you get one that actually works and delivers on their promises. Research shows that 99.9% .9 of them die in your stomach acid before they reach your gut. That's where Just Thrive Probiotics stands out from the crowd. Their proprietary strains have been third-party clinically tested and proven to arrive 100% alive in your gut, unlike other probiotics that die on the way. But that's not all. Their probiotics have more clinical research than any other products on the market and are proven to work. So if you are tired of struggling with gut issues like gas, bloating, and indigestion, look no further than Just Thrive Probiotics. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off your first 90-day bottle of Just Thrive Probiotic. So visit JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Again, it's JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Now back to the show. Yeah, I love talking about this with people because it oftentimes it takes it really outside of the realm of like relationships. For me, like self-discipline is a great way to build self-worth. It's like, can I make a commitment to myself and follow through? So, it, and I think, you know, exercise or physical challenge is a really great way to do that. Um, for me, there was a period in my life a couple of years ago 
where I was in a really tough place and I was on the brink of leaving a relationship, which I knew I needed to leave. And it was, you know, not, not good. Um, and I was in a really tough place personally. And I made a commitment to myself that I was going to run a hundred kilometers over the course of the month, which is not a huge amount, but I'm not a runner. And it was, it was a stretch for me. It was like going from literally zero to a hundred. Um, and I made the commitment and I did it. And I showed up every day and I ran and it was like, yeah, I can do a hard thing. Um, I can do something that's uncomfortable. That's another thing I'd say. It doesn't have to be physical, but getting uncomfortable and increasing your capacity for discomfort, because then it's like, oh, I get to experience my own efficacy in a really tangible, you know, experiential way. And then I start to be like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm strong. I'm resilient. I'm capable. And I think that's really the opposite of low self-worth. Low self-worth would have you believe that you aren't capable. Uh, that you don't have efficacy, that you, you know, there's no point even trying because you'll just fail. Uh, The more we can be with discomfort and endure uncomfortable things, uh, I think that, and and following through on those commitments to ourselves via things like self-discipline, you know, making those, it's like, I think it's very hard to trust your own uh, word if you don't follow through on the things that you say you're going to do, even if it's little things. It's just like, when your word means nothing to you, it's going to be really hard to trust other people. Um, and that really tends to erode self-respect because we have this mentality of, you know, I'm, I just, I'm flaky. I don't follow through. I, you know, I can't show up for the things that I say are important to me. Uh, and so I think that having that kind of practice, a self-practice of some sort of self-discipline and follow through and showing up on those commitments you make to yourself is really, really powerful way to build self-worth. Um, I think telling the truth more often, a lot of us just don't tell the truth or we um, self-censor or we shapeshift or we just try and say what we think other people want us to say, uh, but we conceal parts of ourselves or, you know, those those sorts of patterns tend to not be great for self-worth. Um, I think working on our boundaries, on, you know, taking care of our own capacity rather than overextending ourselves and then feeling resentful. Um, I think that there's some other ways to build self-worth. Yeah, I think like reducing exposure to, to negative influences, if there are people or situations that consistently bring out parts of you that you know you don't like, uh, you know, certain groups of friends where every time you go out with them, you behave in a way or you kind of get sucked into a dynamic or a an energy that you know is not the kind of person you want to be, then putting boundaries for yourself around that or, or reducing your exposure to, to people or situations that you know are not aligned. I think that can be another way to build self-worth rather than just, you know, doing pattern repeats on things that have very predictable outcomes and then feeling bad about it. I think all of those things are uh, kind of everyday, not relational ways to build self-worth that then really um, have great paid great dividends in terms of our, our self-worth in relationship. I'm really glad you brought up like the self-trust aspect of things because I think self-trust is a big part, obviously, obviously of self-confidence. And I was just talking to somebody about this the other day where, um, you know, if you constantly are telling yourself you're going to do something and then you don't do it, you create this level of cognitive dissonance where your brain, you just, I think your brain just stopped believing you. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, I don't believe in it's you. Meaningless. Believe yeah. It's like you say you're yeah. going to do it, but you don't do it. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't believe in you. I don't have hope mm-hmm. in you because 
you're not even following through with the simple things. And I love how you brought that up and why and the importance of that so that you can start to rebuild this trust within yourself. You mentioned talk, telling the truth more often, you know, you know, speaking our, speaking our truth more and being ourselves more is, is all important um, to building self-worth. Because I think what happens is we, when we end up like doing things for other people or we seek validation to please other people, or we just try to fit in just to get attention from somebody, whatever the example is, we slowly begin to lose ourselves. And then slowly, you know, and, and then over time, you know, months go by, years go by, and you're a completely different version of yourself and not necessarily for the, for, for the good because you've morphed into these, all these different identities of other people because you couldn't really figure out like what you stood for and also lean into that. And then you end up becoming angry at yourself and resentful because you know deep down that this isn't who you are. And then that creates even more problems. So I just wanted to, to really emphasize the importance of that for people listening to this, because if you don't believe in yourself, nobody else will. If you don't value your, if you don't value yourself, nobody else will. If you don't know what you stand for, nobody else will. Yeah. And it doesn't give anyone, like, there's nothing concrete for people to actually connect with because there's no substance to it. It's just so dishonest. And so even if it works in the short term, even if you like build a relationship based on some facade, it's, it's a lie, right? It's a sham and it'll come crumbling down. And then not only have you lost the relationship that was built on inauthenticity, but as you say, you've lost yourself. So you're left with this immense grief of like, I traded everything to try and get some kind of cheap validation from people. And that's long gone because it's never very uh, lasting that kind of validation from people that's based on inauthenticity. And here I am standing in the dust, empty handed, having long ago lost touch with who I am and, and what I care about in the world. And there is a lot of grief in that. I, and I think, and I'm glad that we were going down this road or we went down this road because it was kind of getting at what I was asking before in that there's a lot of people that might read relationship stuff they might look at attachment styles and just say because of what they're doing in relationships and how they're behaving why well, just there, it must be my attachment style or it must be this but really it might just be their self somebody's self-worth and they have to like really work on themselves and rebuild their self-confidence and what they're looking for in their life and in their relationships and with themselves and making sure that what they're doing matches that making sure the the video matches the audio right um which I think can be really challenging, especially in today's world where it's easy to get distracted, fall into the comparison trap. You wish you were something or wish, wish you were somebody else. And it's challenging. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to emphasize as well that the unworthiness or the lack of self-respect doesn't necessarily sit outside of attachment styles. It can be a symptom of an attachment style. You know, unworthiness tends to be a common thread among those insecure attachment styles. It's like our that attachment style formed because my sense of self didn't get fully nurtured. Uh, and so I learned to, to suppress parts of myself or to emphasize other strategies to try and get a need met in a way that wasn't coming from a kind of secure, integrated place because that's what I had to do in you know that family system in order to survive, or at least that's what it feels like. Um, when it's coming from that really instinct-driven place. It's like, if I need to get my parents' attention, uh, that feels like life or death for a, a child, for an infant, because it is, right? We are really dependent. Um, and so that sense of 
feeling like life or death can really stay with people um, and and drive the intensity of some of those attachment responses, even though it's obviously in a totally different context and we do have more skills and and more capacity as an adult to take care of ourselves. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Um, But yeah, no, I think like the unworthiness or the lack of self-respect or even self-loathing can be very much embedded or baked into those insecure attachment patterns. But as I said, it's never, it's always a good place to start with that stuff because across the board, you're never going to be worse off as a result of doing that work. Now taking this to the next um, level, we've all, we've covered, you know, obvious, obviously the different attachment styles. We talked about self worth and and why why people should really focus on that before, you know, m- trying to go down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out what else might have caused this. Right? Let's just say somebody has established that they have a, a decent level of self worth and they're still finding themselves anxiously attached. It's the more common one, as you said, the more more common insecure attachment. Using you and I as an example, let's just say that you and I have just started to date. I'll, I'll, I'll be the guinea pig. Let's just say I'm anxiously attached. What kind of things would I begin doing at the start of the relationship? And how could I unlearn some of those patterns into, and re, and into something healthy? Yeah. So some of the early signs that you're anxious attachment is being activated would be things like becoming very attached very quickly. So this might be, oh, I've been messaging this person on a dating app for a few days. And I'm already thinking about, you know, what Marriage. our children's names will be. Yeah. <laughs> we go very quickly to idealizing someone and getting very swept up in the fantasy um, and, you know, putting all of your eggs in one basket and becoming very tunnel vision. So, I can't think about anything else. I can't focus at work. I don't want to spend time with my friends. I just want to totally invest in this person and this connection. So really over-indexing on the relationship, Um, wanting to talk all the time. Anxiously attached people will have a strong preference for being in communication as much as possible. Uh, So they will happily just text all day long or, you know, want to see each other all the time Um, and will often create a lot of story and potentially catastrophize or panic at the sign of any change. So if someone, you know, and and they'll be so uh, locked in on the micro. So it's like, oh, yesterday they were responding to my texts every 30 minutes, but today I haven't heard from them in two hours. So I'm worried that something's wrong and they're losing interest in me. It's that level of scrutiny and hypervigilance to any like minute change in the temperature of the connection and the relationship. So that level of hyper-focus, very quick attachment um, and very intense attachment is really symptomatic of the anxious attachment pattern in early dating. In terms of what you can do to rein that in a little in yourself, it's for a lot of people it's not easy, right? Because it's like it's coming from a part of you that, you know, when we experience that stress, it's our nervous system that's just going there, right? Like it's not something that you can easily just switch off. And if there's a level of, you know, almost muscle memory about it that we can't control the feeling necessarily, but uh, we can notice it in ourselves and go, oh, okay, look, I'm 
completely preoccupied and checking my picking my phone up every 30 seconds to check if I've gotten a message from them. Can I notice that in myself, notice the anxiety and help myself out by putting some boundaries in place? So maybe if, you know, we've been dating for two weeks and I notice that or you notice that anxiety in yourself, rather than waiting for me to text you all day, could say, hope you have a great day at work. Let's talk tonight or something that it's like put structure and boundaries in place so that I'm not just in this anticipatory anxiety of being tethered to my phone, for example, or being totally consumed by thinking about it all day long and wondering if you're going to message me and why you haven't messaged me and if there's something wrong and all of that very all-consuming, catastrophizing, you know, monitoring for something to go wrong that is going to threaten the connection. Then starting to go, oh, is it because I said something weird last night? Maybe I said something awkward. Did I do this? Did I do that? There's just like something bad is going to happen that's going to take you away from me. And that terrifies me because even though we only just met, I'm totally obsessed with you. So that's kind of the the overall character and tone of, of anxious attachment. I think some of the other things that for an anxiously attached person can be helpful in early dating in particular, and frankly, throughout a relationship is diversify your energy. So don't just lock in on target and go, my life is now about this person in this relationship. Like keep up with the other areas of your life. Keep making plans with your friends. Like, you know, focus on your work when you're at work, have hobbies, like do things that aren't just about the relationship. A lot of anxious people will, um, pretty much clear the calendar just in case the person they're dating wants to hang out. So they won't make plans with anyone else. It's like, oh, if they get invited to you know drinks with friends on a Friday night, it's like, oh, sorry, I can't just in case. It's not even because I have plans, but this person might want to see me and I don't want to not be available for them because I want to spend as much time with them as possible. And that can just take you down a really, you know, it, you can get very isolated And it just raises the stakes and the pressure on the relationship. So then if it doesn't work, all of a sudden you're left really empty handed because, you know, it's that whole loss of self thing. It's like, oh, I I abandoned ship on all other aspects of my life to just go all in on this person who I've just met. Um, And now I feel like an idiot and I feel so rejected and I feel like, you know, worthless and I have nothing else going on for me because I let go of all the other things. So really diversifying your energy and attention rather than um, like going from zero to a hundred on someone and, and dropping everything else, I think is a good, good rule of thumb as well. So do you recommend that somebody who's anxiously attached, like date multiple people at once to kind of keep themselves, um, not zero, like not so focused on just one person. In some cases, a lot of anxious people struggle with that. And I feel like a bit of a hypocrite giving that advice. Cause I've never been very good at doing that myself. Um, but I think, yes, if you can, like, that's probably a good idea, particularly in the very early stages, like, but more than that, I think the advice should be like, make sure you are assessing them because for most anxious people, they will go very quickly to, um, like, as soon as someone shows interest in me, my mission becomes to get them to want me. And I forget that I'm meant to be assessing their suitability to be my partner as well. <laughs> I just, my, my whole focus becomes how can I get them to fall in love with me? How can I make them want me and choose me and think I'm amazing? And I become so hyper-focused on that and obsessed with that. And I'm not even like looking at this person as like, do I really like them? Do I really want them? Are they a good match for me? It's just about being chosen. And so 
whether it's by dating multiple people and thereby like getting to know what different types of people are like in a relationship. And again, that is more, I think that puts you more in the driver's seat because you're going, what do I like in a partner rather than just them choosing me being the only criterion that you're looking at. Um, so I think like that quality of making sure you are looking at someone's suitability for you rather than just the fact that they chose you being the only box that you're wanting to have ticked, I think is a good rule of thumb. I know we've talked about that, you know, you shouldn't necessarily make your attachment style like your identity, like that you shouldn't like necessarily put it like in your dating profile, right? That your ex, you know, attachment style, but also to be aware, it's important to be aware of it. How, um, what role does communication play in all of this? Like, meaning if you start dating somebody, like if somebody came to me, um, and again, this is just purely anecdotal and they were like, Hey, you know, when I begin to date people, um, I'm really working through, I'm, I'm really working through some things. Um, and one of the things that I'm trying to work through is I get, um, attached fairly quickly. I might text you a bit much. I might call you a bit much. I mean, just know that I'm, I'm just working through this and I just wanted you to make, to become aware of that. Like I would actually respect that person for having the courage and vulnerability to openly share and admit that. Like, like all of us, we're, we're, we're flawed, right? Versus it's just coming out like indirectly throughout the course of the relationship or dating, right? And so what are your, what are your thoughts on like communicating that type of stuff um, when you're beginning to, you know, date someone? There's certainly scope to say to someone like, here are the things I'm working on. And I think it can show a level of self-awareness that some people will really respect and respond well to. And for other people, uh, it might scare them off and maybe that's okay um, because maybe they're not your people. Uh, I think for more anxious people, there can be a tendency to want to like, you know, disclose their anxious attachment as if it's, you know, a, a disease, you know, <laughs> it's like, <Yeah. laughs> just so you know, I have anxious attachment. And so just, you know, I'm putting you on notice. Uh, so I don't know that we have to go quite that far, but we could say, you know, I find it really hard to express needs or to like tell someone how I'm feeling. Cause I don't want to, you know, be a burden. So you can kind of share aspects of it or, or give people insight without having to disclose something as if it is, you know, a contagious disease that you owe them some sort of like declaration around. Um, but I think, again, it will depend on the nature of the connection. And if you are, uh, you know, with, with someone, you're dating someone and you have those kinds of conversations and you're both, you know, into personal development work, that's probably someone who you're going to have more luck with in having those kinds of conversations and that level of vulnerability um, rather than someone who has no interest in that and finds that to be too much. And that might be someone who is more avoidant leaning and that to them might feel like, because people who are more avoidant and this isn't, you know, a, uh, a judgment on them at all. It's just how they've learned to be. Um, they can have quite an aversion to the idea of someone needing things from them or being demanding or, um, you know, that, that sense of like clinginess or too much or like, oh, you want stuff from me that I can't give you. And so for someone like that, if you come at them and say like, hey, I get really attached and I might text you all day and call you all the time and just letting you know, they might go like, okay, alarm bells. 
Um, that's my nightmare, right? Uh, so I think it will just depend on the person and there's probably better ways and, and less good ways of having that conversation. Um, but equally, I don't know that it is something you need to disclose in any sort of formal way. I think you can just reveal parts of yourself bit by bit in a way that feels um, like an appropriate pace as you get to know someone. And I think like having that level of discernment and trust um, is probably a good thing to to cultivate. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's a, I agree with you. I don't think it's a good idea, like date one to like show your attachment <laughs> style badge. You'd be surprised. <laughs> and anytime I do a Q and A on Instagram, like did one last night and I get people asking me, how can I figure out my partner's attachment style on the first date? What questions should I ask them? Or, you know, is it bad to get someone to do a quiz is one I've gotten before. I'm like, yeah, it's bad to get someone to do a quiz. <laughs> please, please, God, don't send someone you've just matched with on on Tinder an attachment style quiz. I don't think it'll end well for you. And I, and I think you have to use discernment, like you said, and I think it totally makes sense to like feel it out where if you're really having like good conversations with somebody, you can tell that they, that they have a high level of self-awareness, that you have a high level of self-awareness, they're into personal development, bettering themselves, you're into that stuff then there's a good chance they're going to be very receptive to you sharing like, Hey, like these are some of the things I'm working on. Like, this is what I'm trying to to work through. I, it doesn't mean that I want to marry you tomorrow. It just means that I, this is just some, some things I'm working through. Um, and I just think there's going to be, at least in my experience, like um, a certain level of respect gained and admiration gained um, depending on the situation, of course, but when you're, you know, when you're upfront and you're honest about like stuff that you're working on, you know, again, not necessarily date one where you're just spilling it all, you know, when you first meet somebody, but as time goes on and you can develop, you develop that kind of rapport where you, you feel comfortable, um, sharing that type of stuff. I think like trust, you know, oftentimes we think of trust as like an all or nothing. And I think that thinking of trust is like laying bricks and it's like, we lay a brick, we put, we share a part of ourselves with someone and then we see what we get back. And if that's, we get back something that's like safe and good and respectful, then we can lay another brick uh, rather than doing it. And like, here's everything about me and here's what you need to know. And like, I just hope you like it. It's like, okay, can I go bit by bit, a step at a time um, and build that safety and make sure that like, you're a safe person for me to show myself to. Um, and I think that's a much more considered way of building like really genuine connection with someone. Is there, do you think it's possible with enough work and reps, you know, practicing this in, in relationships to go from somebody who's anxiously attached to somebody who's then become securely attached where they're not having to worry about, you know, some of these flaws we've been talking about? Yeah, I love that you say with enough reps because it kind of is like that. It is. It's like you just got to practice. And I'm a, I'm a trainer, so that's what I go. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it's like it's it's very apt language to use because so much of this stuff is in our nervous system and it's body memory, and we can't just tell ourselves to feel other than as we do, and so it's only in the doing, in. You know, in the moment I'm triggered and I've always turned left, what would it be like if I turned right today? And can I practice that? And the more that we do it, the more our body's like, oh, okay, turning right is an option for me in those moments. And we build up that capacity and and that kind of new wiring of ways to be in relationships. So it is very much like doing, doing reps of an exercise um, and building up the muscle. Um to your question around, can you go from anxious to secure or, or anything to secure? Um, 
yes, we can absolutely learn how to be more secure in relationships with the caveat of it doesn't mean you're never going to feel anxious again. There was probably always going to be a baseline. You know, the way I explain it from my own experience is in those moments of trigger or tension in a relationship, my brain will always take me to the anxious thoughts instantaneously, right? Um, Because that's just, there's a lot of deep wiring there, but I have built up the capacity and the self-awareness to not act on it. It just becomes like one voice in the choir rather than like this front and center part that's driving the bus and and driving me off a cliff. Uh, So I think that as with a lot of this kind of work, personal development work, it's just like, yeah, you know, to use an example in exercise or any kind of physical challenge, the voice that says, this is too hard, stop. Like like lifting a weight, like this thing's heavy, put it down. It's like, yeah, I I can know that the thing's heavy, but also know that I'm doing this for a reason. Um, And I can make a choice that overrides that fear voice. And I think the same happens with attachment or any kind of relational struggle is I build up the capacity to override my, you know, my fear instincts, which will tell me to do the old thing. And so I get, I have the capacity to choose and I have enough safety within myself to be able to have space to do that. And I think that is uh, the goal. And that is certainly what is possible for people um, on the other side of doing this work. I love how you brought up that just because you become securely attached doesn't mean that you'll never feel anxious again. Right. Cause I think, I think, Sadly. Some, right. Uh, well, I, th- I think anxiety is good. Right. I think a certain level of anxiety is what keeps us going. Right. I mean, I think I was talking to somebody about this, um, and they said to me, they were like, well, without anxiety, if a bear was coming at you, like you, yeah, probably, it's mobilization energy. It's like, get up and re- go kind he, of energy. You wouldn't react without your fight or fl- your fight or flight sy- system, right? You would just get eaten by the bear. So, um, it obviously has its place. Um, going to the other end of this and talking about avoidant attachment, which I think is probably what, probably the most, the second most common. Yeah. It's, it's actually around on par with anxious attachment. So, you know, it's, it's hard to get really clear data on this, but anxious is thought to be like 20-ish percent and avoidant like 20 to 25 even. So in, in some, um, like some circles, I'll say that avoidant attachment is more common than anxious attachment. And then disorganized attachment is thought to be around 5%. So it's much smaller. So, so diving into avoidant attachment, um, Let's just say, again, somebody has worked on themselves. They got their self-worth in check. You and I, same example, we're dating. I'm avoidant. What are some of the things that I might do early on in a relationship or dating? And then how can I, I mean, not rein that in because I don't want to be more avoidant, but how, how could I press on the gas a little bit? The avoidant response is likely to go the other way. It's like uh, when people start to get close, I start to feel threatened and I might not experience it. You know, avoidant people, not all, but many tend to have less emotional self-awareness because that is a part of themselves that they've learned to dial down. Um, so they're less likely to be into personal development work. They're less likely to go to therapy and and be really kind of deep in self-reflection all the time. 
Um, so oftentimes I'll experience things in a way that allows them to not make it about them. So they might suddenly feel very critical of a partner and they're like, oh, I really liked that person last week. And now they are annoying the hell out of me and I find them less attractive than I did inexplicably. And I'm noticing all of these imperfections and my brain's starting to tell me all of the reasons why it's not a good idea and it's not a good fit and uh, maybe this isn't the right person for me. So there can be this level of perfectionism imposed on the other person that is used as a way to create distance. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, no, because the the closeness and the progression of the relationship can feel really overwhelming and threatening. And so subconsciously it's like, how can I create distance? How can I, you know, quote unquote, sabotage this again at a very subconscious level, but it's like um, there can be an aversion to people getting close. Um, So that can show up in lots of different ways. It can also be things like, uh, you know, if someone is texting you a lot or calling you a lot that you ignore them or you don't want to respond or you're kind of short with them, um, you don't want to see them as much, um, and that is likely to only increase the more they escalate. So an, an anxious avoidant uh, pairings are very common, and so you can see we have this clash of conflicting strategies where one person's just trying to get closer and will escalate in the face of distance and the other person feels so threatened by that that they create more distance and so we kind of spiral in opposite directions and can get really entrenched in that dynamic. So for the avoidant person, the things to look out for if you're wanting to work on that is if you notice consistently, this goes for anything, that there is a pattern and and you are the common denominator in this pattern that keeps showing up in your life. And that pattern is people get close and then I lose interest in them or people get close and I start being really judgmental of them and really critical inexplicably. You know, I used to really like them and all of a sudden I feel almost disgust towards them or I just feel really repulsed by them or very judgmental of them. Um, it's probably not about them if that happens every single time. And so I think we have to get curious around, you know, what part of me feels uncomfortable or afraid at the idea of commitment or of pursuing this connection or of letting someone know me at a deeper level? Um, because that can feel immensely vulnerable if you have those more avoidant patterns. So getting curious before just acting on the urge to end the relationship or to create distance or sabotage in some way, because that will often be the urge can I get curious first? Um, and that in and of itself can be challenging because as, as I said, it's not the default mode for an avoidant person to go into introspection. Um, but that is really the growth edge is like, can I increase my capacity to be in connection to be close to people, let them know me and, and depend on me and vice versa, because I'm kind of used to being an island. And so that can feel really edgy. What's the difference between somebody who has an avoidant attachment and somebody who's like emotionally unavailable or just shut down? So I think emotionally unavailable is one of those terms that means different things to different people. Uh, And I think in the Venn diagram, there'd be, you know, most avoidant people would have some level of emotional unavailability. Um, But I also say to people, I think anxiously attached people are not particularly emotionally available because even though they're very emotional, 
uh, and they will attach. When you are consistently um, deferring to other people's needs and preferences and not stating boundaries and doing all of that shape-shifting stuff we talked about, that's not emotional availability because it's inauthentic. Uh, when we say, oh, I'm fine, don't worry about me, when you're not actually fine, that's not emotionally available. It's dishonest. Um, and so I think that actually emotional availability is both people showing up and being open and honest about how they're feeling and you know what their needs are and what their fears are. And I don't think that any of the insecure attachment styles are great at true emotional availability. And that is part of the growth edge for, for all of those different attachment styles. And so going back into the, the growth aspect of somebody who's emotionally avoidant, um, do you think that, um, I guess, would you find the same thing that over time with putting the reps in and just really practicing introspection and self-awareness around why they're feeling or acting this way when they get into a relationship, like doing that enough will lead to them, you know, becoming more secure in relationships? Or have you found that some people, some people like that who are afraid of, of, of being in a relationship, um, do they have deeper work to do with like intimacy stuff in order to get there? Yeah. I think that the fundamental premise of if you do the reps and you show up to the work, then you can get there. Absolutely. That, that holds true. I think the challenge for more avoidant people is their mindset or attitude around having to do work. They're like, oh, relationships shouldn't have to, shouldn't take work. They really value like harmony in relationships and ease. And the idea of like, I have to do work and sit down and have vulnerable conversations or go to therapy. They can have a level of whether it's conditioning from their family system or otherwise just a protective mechanism that says like, nah, that stuff's bullshit, right? All of that, you know, touchy feely stuff, like that's just rubbish. Um, I'm not doing that. And so I think to the extent that you have those, those mindset blocks or attitudes towards the very idea of doing the work, then that's obviously going to impede your ability to, to show up to it and, and to like take those steps. But if you are at a place where you're willing and you do show up and you do it, then it's absolutely within reach and the same principles apply. Can I take like uncomfortable but small steps towards the things that feel, you know, scary to me? It's the same with anything. We don't want to stretch ourselves too far too soon. But if I can just take, you know, tolerable steps, uncomfortable but safe is kind of the term that I offer people. It's like not so big a step that I'm going to freak out and my system's just going to like send me running, but it's just like a little step outside my comfort zone and then a little step again. And, and over time we build the capacity. Um, but for avoiding people, it's like, yeah, can I, can I get better at speaking up for myself? Cause a lot of avoidant people just suppress and then be resentful. It's like, I don't speak a boundary and then I, you know, get angry at you for violating my boundary and I break up with you. Um, and so I can be very black and white. So just like, can I be a little bit, can I increase my tolerance for having, you know, open communication and for conflict and repair rather than being very absolute and quick to declare that a relationship or a person is not right and using that as a way to bypass having to look in the mirror and do my own work. I love that. And I love how like you again, brought up 
that you you really need to at the end of the day you really need to focus on yourself and doing the work and not necessarily blame something else for um not necessarily like you know blame something else to take the attention away from you know you having to work on yourself and I think this is a, I, I think this is a uh, a great place for us to end the combo. We covered so much, Stephanie, and I wanted to to thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. I think people are going to get a lot out of this conversation. So if people want to connect with you, if they want to listen to the podcast, where's the best place to do that? Yeah, thanks, Doug. So I have a podcast called On Attachment, which covers lots of stuff like we've spoken about today that you can find wherever you get podcasts. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Stephanie underscore underscore rig um, or at stephanierig.com. Amazing. Well, I'll be sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. We covered so much ground on self-worth, on different attachment styles, both secure and insecure. And we also talked about how to have the awareness to know if you do have a high level of self-worth or not. We covered so much ground. So what I invite you to do is to share your biggest takeaway, tag Stephanie and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. We once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time.